This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hey there, Corey Lundberg with Altus Performance here, and this is episode 11 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. And it's a bit of a celebratory episode as we are coming off the high of a massive milestone from an Altus client. A few weeks ago, Cam had a a really good conversation with European tour player Andrea Pavan, and we planned to release that conversation this week. And Andrea must have known because he went out and he won his very first European tour event, the Czech Masters last week, to make sure that we were especially timely and topical with our podcast this week. So if you are tuned into the world of golf, you should have a bit of context and be familiar with Andrea now. Hopefully you saw him battle it out against Patrick Harrington, shooting 31 in the back nine, birding two of his last three to close it out, which launched him up to 39th on the race to Dubai and 140th ranked player in the universe. But if not, I'll give a little bit more background. Andrea is a bit of a specimen, some striking Italian good looks, no stranger to the gym, an absolutely amazing ball striker, just like draw dropping iron play. And he showed off some amazing putting as well this last week, gaining 16 shots in the green for the week. But also he has a real quiet intelligence and confidence about him. He's quadlingual, which I didn't know was a thing, but he speaks Italian and French and Spanish and English which makes him a very valuable and helpful travel partner around Europe. And I've been on the range with him at an event and seen him bounce between all four languages in the span of a few minutes as he interacts with his peers from across the globe on the European tour. And it's all those layers that make Andrea a really interesting guy and this a really interesting conversation to share with you. So enjoy as Andrea shares a bit about his journey, some of the things that we've worked on over the last year, and most importantly, how he's earned his edge to rise over 900 spots in the official world golf rankings in just a short period of time, just uh, the period of a year. So without further ado, here is Cameron and Andrea. Enjoy. So I'm sure Corey's filled you in on the premise of what we're trying to get at here. And hopefully you've listened to a few of them. Essentially, what we're looking to do is we're looking to pull back the curtain on exceptional performance, high performance, not only how it happens, but also where it comes from in the hopes that there are many knowledge nuggets that we can share with an audience of players, both old and young parents, and even people that are tuning into a sports podcast in hopes that they can use something in any area of their life. So that's kind of the the idea behind this. And the conversation will probably run in many different directions. I'm not too sure where we'll start or where we'll end up. In fact, I, I tell a lie. I do know where we'll start. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll fire that a question across to you here most presently, but I'm not too sure where we'll end up, but I know we'll have a good conversation. And this is the first time I've actually had a, probably a decent conversation with you. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I guess thanks in advance for spending some time with us. Yes, you're welcome. I'm excited. Okay. So first question coming right at you out of the gates. When did you know you were good? When did you really, in your heart of heart, think, oh man, I'm good at this and and I set my sights on a a career in professional golf? I remember that my dad had told me, look, if you're scratched by when you're like 14 or 13 or something around that age, then you can have a a chance. But if you don't, like, and you start early, it's like, it's going to be difficult. Uh, uh, So it was more, I just stepped 
like a little steps, and then I get into the national federation, the national team, and once I get into that, I got started to play more tournaments uh, in Europe, and then I I saw that you know uh, it was difficult, but uh, I could compete, and uh, I finished high school young. I was only seventeen, so I was never cocky about you know I want to be a professional. Like that's all I dreamed about it. Maybe it's my character. I just I'm not like a super confident and calm uh, person. I just like to have my. I just wanted to have some door open, still like uh, other other options. So I decided to go to college and get a degree in case you never know if uh, I was actually good enough to to turn professional. But playing in college was a massive experience for me too. Just going starting something different going somewhere that you're not you're not at ease and uh you put yourself uh through that and i think it was a massive experience uh, also when then when i was ready to turn professional because from amateur golf to professional it's all different you restart so it didn't matter what you did before uh, it's just a whole new whole new thing so it was kind of the same when i went to college it didn't matter what i did as a junior i had to prove myself then and then I had to prove myself as a professional. So yeah, it was great. And I completely understand the logic there. I was a question I was going to ask, and there are multiple threads that I would love to pull on about or out of that last um, three or four minutes of discussion that you gave us right there. The one about college, the backup plan, the backup program, I think is a fantastic insight, particularly for someone coming from the continent of Europe or even into the UK because the norm there is to come out of a federation or a national program and then turn professional. But you saw that golf was an option for you or a highly proficient player, but you, as I know you to be, correct me if I'm wrong, a very methodical and logical type of person, practical, if you will, said that also there's another opportunity for me here. I can go to college. I can continue to work on my golf game. And if it gets good enough, then pro golf might be part of my future. But if it's not, then education is going to be my pathway into some sort of profession beyond uh, Texas A&M. So how did you select Texas A&M? I mean, coming from just north of Rome to College Station, mm -hmm. Texas, and for those that don't know what College Station, Texas is like, which is probably 90% of our international audience, you better give them a good description of College Station, Texas. <laughs> yes, I, I would say it's uh, pretty much the total opposite from uh, – where I grew up, but uh, I mean, going back uh, to 2005 when I was uh, 16, that's when I kind of I started receiving a few emails from a couple of different golf coaches. I had never played in the in the U.S. Uh, junior tournaments apart from the Orange Bowl uh, at the end of that year. And just to interject real quick, you won the Italian amateur stroke play in 2005, and that probably put you even more on their radar then, correct? Yes, I mean, it was only a national event, so only Italians could participate, but it was a very big win for me because I was only 16 It's uh, and uh, playing against uh, players that are much older. And, you know, in, in golf, it makes a difference when you're 16 playing, even against uh, players who are 19 and 20. It just, uh, it, was a, it was a very big win for me. And kind of then I, I started realizing, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. I was... I had won my uh, the under 14 when I was 14 and then the 16, and, you know, for my age, the Italian national championship. So uh, I knew I was good, but to go on and win on above 
with older players. It was uh, it was big. And then why Texas A&M? And then Texas A&M, it was uh, it was kind of a, a decision of going somewhere that I could play in the winter, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I had another offer from UVA, but uh, in Virginia it was too cold. I, I don't know. I just I felt like I wanted to go somewhere I could play all year, and uh, I had a good good feeling with the coach. It was uh, uh, Coach Higgins. He was uh, seemed like a really nice guy, and then we ended up uh, getting along very well, and. Uh, uh, I really it was uh, it was kind of like just a not, not very thought I didn't go visit the university so I just said look I'll try it and then we'll see how it goes and it ended up being great. There's a particular question here that we've asked almost every guest so far and it pulls out an array of different responses so I'm going to ask it to you and I'm going to have some following kind of dialogue that may even frame in fact, I'll, I'll put it to get, put it on the front end. So you're at Texas A&M, you're winning collegiately, and then in 2009, you were part of an NCAA golf championship, and then you turn professional at the end of the 2010 season, and you go to Q School, and that's kind of the lead into the following question: Life is filled with ups and downs. A career is filled with ups and downs. Is there one particular or a couple of moments where you fell short of your expectations? You may call it an abject failure, but yet at the same time, when you look back on it in hindsight in the review mirror, you say it changed me because of what I went through, whereas you've become more successful because of it. Was that Q school for you that first year? I think uh, Q school was one of them. There were a lot of uh, difficult times, uh, even in college. I mean, I, uh, I had moments where I was really struggling and then moments where I was playing very well and everything was going well. But yes, definitely, you know, going, I think going from being, you know, a pretty well-known player in Europe as a junior and going into the U.S. where there were a lot of good players and uh, having to prove myself to be on the team and go through uh, every week through qualifying that we played the to get a spot in the team was uh, was something that uh, put pressure on yourself, and I felt like it, it prepared me for the future. But yes, Q school was very tough because I decided to go and try the U- uh, U.S. Q school, and I didn't get through that one. And then I went to Europe, and I didn't get through that one either. So it was it was a difficult moment because all of a sudden I I just had to go through the federation and. Uh, for some uh, invites on the challenge tour, but I remember that I wasn't, I wasn't too, I didn't feel too defeated, and uh, I looked forward to the challenge, to starting from the challenge tour, and that year I actually had an amazing year, and then I got to the European tour. But yeah, in in, in fact, just for the listeners' uh, sake, there was the runner-up finish at the Carton and Golf Open and then the Credit Suisse Challenge where you were leading before a final round that kind of uh, you fall sh- fell short on, then winning in Norway and then finally the season-ending event as well. So it was an amazing, successful year. But what I'd like to understand right there is, was there something you changed after what happened at Q School? And if there wasn't anything you changed, what was it that you fell back on? What strategies, what actions, what thought processes you fell back on to turn – what was a really disappointing point in your fledgling professional career into an amazingly successful rookie season on the Challenge Tour? Yeah, it was a few years back, and 
to be honest, I just remember kind of uh, resetting everything, resetting the goals, the expectations. Maybe I went into Cusco with a lot of expectations, feeling like uh, I had gotten, I had played well on, on the year before on the in college, and I felt like I should have gotten through, and then I didn't. So I, I kind of maybe just got back, got grounded again, and started practicing just uh and then let kind of the results uh talk and that's kind of uh, i think uh the way i did approach it you said something there for the second time in this conversation which i think is a great visual or a great way to say something resetting like hit the reset button restart the computer recognizing that one performance or a series of events if you will don't necessarily define what's going to happen in the future. You need to recognize that there's a start and a finish to each day, to each event, to each period of performance that doesn't mean it's going to continue to be the same way, right? You wake up the next day and the clouds have turned to sun, so to speak, and that kind of speaks to maybe that attitude of giving yourself a chance to recognize the future is going to be different. But you also mentioned expectations, are you saying that having expectations is either a good or a bad thing, or are you indifferent to that? I think it depends on the circumstances, but for me, I think I need to manage it in a way that they they don't need to be too high or too low. I mean, I, it's important to set goals, and we talk about it with Corey. He especially he pushes myself to set some goals. Uh, I've always been a very uh, self-driven person, even without having too many goals in my mind. I mean, I'm not a guy who, who writes something in the mirror and reads it every day in order to just get up and, and go do the work. Uh, I just like to go there and work on, on my game and just feel like I get better every day. But I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. I don't know. No, I understand completely. I think it's, it's great, great perspective on that. Going back to the expectations. Yes. It's, but when I go out and play, uh, it's kind of just, play the game, you know, don't, in this last year, especially if they're falling back on the challenge tour and, and struggling on it. Uh, last year was a very difficult, difficult season, especially in the middle of the summer. My game wasn't great and the results weren't, were showing even, uh, were not showing any good, good things at all. So it, it was difficult. And, uh, I remember just kind of, um, having to dig deep and uh and don't don't worry too much about uh the future you know just uh, kind of getting out there and play and uh i remember i had something written down it wasn't like a goal it was more like the daily goal in order to just play and and just expect greatness and free yourself up kind of right and was that something you looked at before every round or was it written somewhere where it was visible during rounds it was something i started to read just before the round just to to kind of get myself to commit to to things and and don't worry about results and and just um just going out there and expect to play great where did that habit where did that practice come from i mean it was it was a little mix of uh coach higgins in college that was very very much into that uh, mental aspect of the game and then just reading i worked with a few different uh sports psychologists back in uh, in italy and so it was a little bit of a mix kind of going back uh, through things and trying to figure something out to how to how to get away and 
talking to Corey about it. And I mean, it was uh, a little bit of a recipe of everything and it just seemed to, to help me. And it's something that with Corey, we, we talk about, you know, frequently. Yeah. So you would say managing that inner voice, that voice in your head, what you're telling yourself is therefore one of the edge earning actions that brought you from a disappointing 2017 season forward to 2018, which is your best season on the European tour to date, correct? Yes. I mean, there is that. And there is also the fact that I'm, I've improved also on the, the skill part of the game. I mean, that's the, the form is also a big part of it, but there is that combination of uh, self like confidence and uh, form that go together. So, right, you know, right. you, it's like, uh, it's hard to describe, but I mean, it's something that uh, you have to work on both things in order to have success. And I felt like it's hard to know which one comes first, to be honest. But. <laughs> We're trying to solve that mystery ourselves. I think everyone out there is trying to solve the mystery. Is it the results that come before the confidence or the confidence comes before the results? So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Are you a quick learner? There's a specific reason I'm asking this question, and I'm, I'm very brief and short with it. Are you a quick learner? Do you think of yourself as a quick learner, a quick study? I would say on things I do, and uh, on myself, probably not so much. Like, uh, changing behavior for me is very difficult, so... How does someone effectively learn Spanish, Italian, French, and English, come across the United States, and seemingly integrate into an American society where the rest of the team largely are... Uh, from from Texas, how does how does that happen? <laughs> well, I guess if you put it in that way, I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh... Corey also says you're highly adaptable as well, and that's what we know about great athletes: is you can teach them one thing, and you can you can basically explain it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I got it. I can do it." And they can do it like the next, the second or third swing out. And what we're trying to understand is where does that come from? Yeah, I mean the language part. It's something my parents decided to to send us to a French school in, in Rome, my sister and I. So they were really big into languages. They knew, like, you need to know languages and you need to learn them and young. And, and then luckily I just, I ended up learning four languages. And when you learn them as a kid, then it's pretty easy to, to study them and, and to learn them. Do you think there's any crossover, any benefit that you've been able to exploit into your golf from learning multiple languages and being quite frankly, a really, really good student, both in high school and then beyond into college? I think so. I mean, first of all, like traveling, it's big. You get comfortable going a lot of places and knowing you can talk to other people and don't feel that, that language barrier that can isolate you and make you feel homesick. So that's something that growing up I didn't feel very much. As far as uh, studying, uh, yes, definitely. I mean, just knowing about things, and I was always a—I uh, think I'm—I was always a pretty curious person. So that's something that helped. Even though, like, just going places and just 
learning a little bit about them or reading about them uh, something that uh, I did enjoy and my my dad was a airline pilot airline pilot so we traveled a lot with him growing up so it's uh, it was part of me the the traveling has never been something that I felt like it was a, a difficult part of the the job so yeah so culturally you can look back support structure you can look back and say there were many uh, I guess influences towards valuing uh, travel valuing application to whatever it is you're doing meaning be wherever you are be all there and those have been dramatic skill sets that you take into developing your golf skills so let's uh, unpack those golf skills if we will to differentiate your success this year from previous years what's changed from a skill standpoint from a physical skill standpoint and how radically or how much do you think it's changed to produce the results you've got this year? I think the skill part has improved, but if we go then analyze it in depth, it's not as big as the result probably show it. I mean, it's something that Corey and I've been working. It's a, It seems to be the, the same thing that we've been working for a while now. It's been over a year and we're still working on the same thing. It's not like it is getting, it's probably one of my tendencies. So we try to keep it under control. And as I play more, it gets a little, a little way. So then we have to just keep an eye on it. So it seems like it, it's good to know that it's one thing that it's like the, the most important part of what I'm working on, especially it's a pretty much a transition from the, the top of the back swing and into the downswing. So the way my my right hip moves uh, and uh, it has improved and but I think there's more to it there's the the preparation into the tournament that with Corey we we really worked on it and the way I approach each tournament in a way that I know that sometimes I'm gonna have my a game and I can be aggressive and sometimes I'm not Corey helped me a lot understand that like how to play the golf course and how to approach different situations in a way that before in the past I would be uh, maybe a little bit I would try too hard to hit the perfect shot instead of just accepting to get it somewhere on the right side of the of the tee which uh, tee shots are let's say my uh, uh, Achilles heel so and then from there play to my strength which is your iron play? My iron and then uh, my short game is pretty good and putting fluctuates, I think, with every player. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, don't get in my own way. Just don't try to force the things. And there are going to be weeks where I'm going to be playing well and I can force and be more aggressive and weeks that it's not. So I think that's that's been really helpful, especially the difference between the Challenge Tour and the European Tour. And I think it's similar from the web.com to the PGA Tour. It's uh, off the tee. You just have more rough and the courses are longer. So you really need to be, to be, <laughs> you either play really well or you have to be good in uh, in your course management when you don't have your best stuff. How soon do you know that you've got your best stuff and, and how difficult is it to refine if it's getting a little off track during a tournament week? Generally, when I get on the course, the first look at the course, I 
I kind of feel if I'm, if I'm, it's the week where I can get up high and rip it or I need to get something different going. Also depends on the golf course. Sometimes just the, the look of a golf course. Like I grew up in tree lined, uh, very tall tree golf courses. So when I get out on a golf course that has no tree and elevate a lot of slopes, it's a little more different, uh, looking. I tend to, to struggle a little more to visualize the shot. So I just have to adapt. And, but, uh, you know, it's something that I've, I've learned and, uh, I'm working on it and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's getting better. And I think we're just, we're, we're on the right track. Yeah. You mentioned something about five minutes back about the process of improvement that your time with Corey has been working on a very steady diet of the same thing. And my experience with the best players that I coach always goes back to revisiting the same blueprint. And for many players that either have drunk too much from the cup of pursuing perfection or a certain look in their technique, they can't tolerate that. They can't tolerate that if they do one or maybe two things and continue to do them over an extended period of time, that that's going to be the pathway towards results. They're out there tinkering on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it's always a different swing thought. In fact, I met with a fairly new client most recently that has a great history on the PGA Tour, and his swing thoughts shift on every shot only because he's the proverbial dog that's chasing its own tail because he doesn't diet on any level of consistency. So what you hit home on right there is a massive point of learning for anyone in any area of life. Once you have the blueprint, then you wash, rinse, repeat on that blueprint. And then typically, as long as the information you're getting from whoever you're getting it from is solid, it's going to yield results at some point in the future. And you've got to ride through those ups and down, those trials and tribulations, the difficult times for the, to see the success on the other side of that. What do you tell yourself when things aren't going the right way that allows you to be patient? And when I'm saying about that, I'm not talking about after rounds. I'm talking about during rounds. Would you define yourself as a patient player or do you have a little bit of a kind of a, a temper type of thing? <laughs> I would say my temper has gotten better, but... Yes, I I used to be a lot worse than now. For In what sure. Way? Give, uh, give me an example. <laughs> a, a good example would be, be uh, yeah, in college. Uh, in college, one tournament in Austin, uh, yeah, the UT tournament. I remember I had played well, but on one hole, I I duffed the chip and I just like I kind of swung it back toward my foot, and I I just hit the shaft with my foot and uh, the shaft snapped there. So <laughs> who hasn't done and that? <laughs> I had I had eight holes to go without my lob wedge and uh I just silently put it back into my bag and not the coach, neither the assistant coach saw it. So I just finished, didn't tell anyone. As I was loading up the the bag onto the truck, uh one of the uh, our teammates truck, half of the wedge <laughs> fell off the bag onto the 
onto the parking lot, making the, you know, the ding, 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 ding. And the assistant coach turns around and sees me and, and saw my face. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I, what's going to happen now? Because I was already in the, on the blacklist of uh, doing things. (laughs) Uh, So that was is one of those moments but um and so you say you've tempered it which is i guess yeah bad word to use but you've you've softened it how have you softened it and how have you channeled it to where your reaction to the events during a round can now be channeled to be more positive because because i see the same thing and i've had to give plenty of interviews whether they're on tv radio or otherwise where i've had to talk about like the manifestation of what's going on inside someone's head physically, like the mannerisms, the talking to the golf ball or the demonstrative behavior, those demonstrations that players have. And my expression or the way I explain it is I say, I think it's just as ludicrous for we as viewers or you as commentary to expect players to behave in the same way as it is for them to be swinging in the same way. So I think that it's okay to see players vent and to be real but back to the original question, how have you channeled it? What is it that you tell yourself to bring yourself back to hit a good shot on the next shot? <laughs> it depends uh, on the situation, I would say. But yeah, there are just moments that I let's not hurt ourselves by breaking a club or uh, or doing something stupid. I guess uh, I have my caddy now, so I just if I want to break something, I just tell him, take it before I break it, something like this. <laughs> I mean, if, if those moments come, but, um, get the club out of your hand as soon as possible. Yeah. Like, uh, stuff like this. But I mean, uh, overall, I guess with probably with age and just growing up a little bit, I guess I, I, I calm down a little. Maturity. Yeah. Maturity. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that some players just react more to certain situation than others. For example, Francesco Molinari, who, you know, he just won the, uh, he used some, I've seen him win tournaments and barely give a fist bump, but he wants it. He's just, he's just that way. I think he just doesn't show emotions. And then you see uh, other players who, who make a birdie on the first all of the tournament and they, there, they just get a massive fist bump going. I think, that there are just so many different personalities and so many different players that you have to kind of find, find your way. Yeah. Find your way and maybe by trial and error a little bit, figure out which, what works best for you, I think. And some guys, they figure it out very early and some guys figure it out a bit later in their career. But luckily in golf, you can play for a long time. So if your body holds up and so. I just think, yeah, you just need to be patient. Have you found that talking to yourself, well, giving yourself a dressing down, talking yourself to talking to yourself in bad language and cursing yourself out is is effective? Because in my experience, players would say it is effective as long as it can be channeled towards a narrowness of focus and a and focus and a positive intent for that next shot. Yes, I would say, I would say that if it's very short, if it's very, if it has uh, some kind of, uh, like, uh, as you say, if, if it gets you focused for the next shot, definitely. But when then it, it's very easy then to get it going in the negative way, which 
I think uh, the negative self-talk, it just, uh, it's very difficult to get out of it. And then it can really affect your, your future shots. So going back, it just, there are players, they just play and it doesn't bother them if they hit an OB or if they hold it, you know, foreign. It's just the same reaction. And there are players who, who show it much more. And I think, I think, again, I just feel like you just have to know yourself a little bit and then find the tune yourself, like a little tune up, uh, because everyone's different. Yeah, right. And so in terms of, let's say, defining your DNA, because to say that everyone's different is a true statement, but yet at the same time, that doesn't necessarily help someone go out and find what is effective for them. But I think given the next question on reflection, do you spend time and how, how beneficial would any reflective time journaling or just sitting in quiet thought, would that be helpful towards any person out there finding what's unique and therefore beneficial for them, their, their performance DNA, I call it? Yes. I mean, I, I, I dwell on past experiences and good or positive. I try to definitely, especially in the last year or so, try to really reinforce the good moments and and uh, the the good the good shots and but uh it journaling is something that i have tried and i didn't find it that helpful that it wasn't helpful or that it just took too much time because the process of going through in your own head is essentially journaling your your recalling those experiences and therefore strengthening those experiences in your mind and that's the process of journaling whether it's written or not yes i i mean i'm saying yes so if you consider just going through your head, then definitely. And I, I guess I haven't found it helpful to write it down and go through or maybe too time consuming or whenever I finish around, I generally write back to Corey. And a lot of times now I write him about, you know, like if I hit a very good shot or something that I really liked and, you know, he, he reinforces by just, put it, you know, uh, put it up there in your memory bank. That's something that you really need to, to keep. And, and that's something that it's been helpful. And, but, uh, to go and I haven't been good at writing down things. Uh, I have tried. I just, uh, probably because I wasn't, it's something that I just haven't been too, uh, consistent. And then I just kind of didn't see the difference right now i get it i get it and 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 please i want you to continue to do you because so far this year doing you has really worked but what you gave us right there was a really cool sneak peek behind the scenes to that coach to player relationship where there's an interaction going on after rounds or between tournaments to get on the same on the same page so to speak and so many players and so many people go through life without leaning on others for guidance and advice or even just to be merely a sounding board and that's certainly comes with a level of wisdom to recognize that you're the one out there hitting the shots. And when you're playing golf, you are essentially alone doing it alone, but you're not alone in the entire process of getting better. You're not alone in this pursuit of mastery and this pursuit of improvement and to have a support team, your wife, your kids, because they allow you to disconnect from golf, your, your, your family, 
back in Italy or when they're over here supporting, and they, they also allow you to disconnect from golf. It's absolutely critical. So uh, I, I think that that alone is kind of essential knowledge and information for everyone out there listening. So moving into performance, and I've, I've taken a lot of your time and you've been so gracious. I've got just a few more questions, if that's okay. Yeah. And one of them is yeah, centered, okay. centered around pressure. So people experience pressure typically when they're doing something that's important to them. So we kind of know where pressure comes from. It's like this anticipation of, man, I hope this goes well because it's really important to me and I really care about this. But what we don't know is the way you deal with pressure and the way you not only handle it, but possibly overcome it. Are there certain strategies, techniques that you use that you've found effective in dealing with pressure? Yes. I mean, you, you have to learn how to deal with pressure and accept it. I think it's uh, acceptance is a, it's a big part of it because it's uh, and pressure. I think, it, as you said, it's something it's something good, something that makes you feel like you care. And a lot of times it makes you it, it makes you hit some shots that you don't hit in practice. So that, that adrenaline uh, rush and it's something hard to recreate in practice and but in those situations i think you just try to get away from from the results and just focusing on the, focus on the on the process focus on on what on what you have to do in the moment i think it it may it may reduce that feeling of uh this is uh so important that i'm feeling so much uh so much pressure about it yeah, so it's a, it's a strategy called minimizing, recognizing yeah. that it's a, it's a shot. And while your brain and body are kind of convulsing in, man, this is really important, I'm feeling the, the heartbeat, the sweaty palms, et cetera, minimize it down to it's just a shot like any other shot that I've hit in practice. On the back end of that question, the things that Corey has you do from a training standpoint when he writes out that training prescription, do you find those given that they're performance-based, they're skills-based, and particularly on the heels of what Francesco was talking about, his work with Dave Allred and performance under pressure and preparing for performing under pressure. Do you feel like those things are also beneficial towards helping you perform when it counts? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think it it's going back to that quality over quantity practice. And I think uh, just on top of having having a more precise way to practice and then uh, dividing practices into just working on form and then going back to some target drills and then or on the greens just uh, splitting time into different things i think it it just quantifies your time spent on the practicing and it gives you a little bit of extra confidence when you are in playing a tournament it's impossible i think to recreate the same pressure because you're not on the tournament and you're not under to be you're not under the gun but i feel like it, it has helped in in situations where at the end of the drill where you have to especially maybe on the putting green where you have to make that putt or you you know you have to hit that tee shot in that target and then go back or restart i think it it just elevates a little bit and uh, it just makes you focus a little more. It's not going to be the same situation as it's, it is uh, maybe during a tournament, but it's something that you can then draw back on when you're in that situation in the tournament saying, you know, 
have done it and let's do it again. The next series of questions are kind of quick hits and they tend to bring up a wider array of different responses, some of them humorous, some of them not. And the questions might occur to you as strange, but there's a reason for them. We're trying to unpack many things about what makes great players, great people, great business entrepreneurs great. And so the first one here, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. All right. And Corey may have already asked you this as type of question that's centered around this concept of doomsday. If you had, yeah. to, if you had to win next week to save humanity, what would your preparation for that round or event be like? It's something that Corey already asked me, so we've talked about it. Uh, but I would say now that we have a pretty good, a very good uh, Monday through Wednesday plan, I would just stick to it and yeah, just uh, refine work on a little bit on, on the whole part of my game, going through drills, going through some form checks and checklists. And then just have a good preparation, good course management. And I imagine that would be your response because it's a question when asked to one of Corey's clients, has the deck stacked in your favor and it should be running that same program as long as it's been well designed, well architected by a player and a coach. So for those out there in in the ether wondering what is this well-defined Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday preparation plan, it would be centered around identifying skill gaps, both the skills that you can see and the skills that you can't see. So the hard skills of technique, of ball control, and the soft skills of tactic, of golf IQ, of prep for that particular event, looking out at weather forecast, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, then the, the, the practice rounds and what happens after practice rounds are informed by what happens previous. So Monday starts with kind of an inventory and then everything that follows from that inventory is based on corrections that you make in practice and practice rounds, hopefully yielding your best performance by the time Thursday's first round comes. Tell me this, what's something that you find very useful to your performance or practice, but maybe others think it's kind of less useful? Something that you do you find important that maybe others say is, eh, I don't, I don't do that because I don't think it's beneficial. I'm not sure if other players do it. I mean, I think they do it. It's just... Uh... I like to work with Corey. We we work on mid range putts to focus on where the ball ends up after the hole. So mm-hmm. it's almost focusing as if the hole wasn't there. Right. I completely understand, and that and that's important for you because it because it just helps me visualize the trajectory of the putter a little more. And sometimes as I get away from that, I just seem to putt a little bit not as well and don't see line as well. So kind of uh, seeing what the ball is going to do after the hole. It helps me read the putt a little better. We're talking about just like a foot or a foot and a half after the hole. But, yeah, uh, so what you're, what you're describing right there is visualizing the final resting point or even working exactly. on that final resting point that helps then marry together the skill of green reading to the skill of speed control to the skill of start line. And I think it's massively important because oftentimes when you look at a target, Golfers yeah. out there in general look at a target and think it's like it's like the bullseye on the dartboard or the center of the um, of the shooting range target where there's no there's no thought about what happens to the dart if it was to go through the dartboard or the bullet once it goes th- through that target. 
Yes, in, exactly. But in fact, what happens to the golf ball as it passes the target is massively important because it inherently uh, then kind of is fits together with the read and the start line control. So it's a, it's a really, we call it a force multiplier, something that you do that dramatically increases your chances of success. And the final one here, before I let you go again, gracious mm-hmm. with your time, what do you think is the difference between the 1% of 1%? You've spent time on playing professional golf for almost a decade now, and you've played some great golf on the greatest of tours, and you've played with some great players. And it's almost a question that you could reframe into, you're one of the world's best players already. You're 55th on Race to Dubai. What needs to change for you to be the 1% of 1% that's top 10 in the world? What's, that, what's the next step for, for you, Andrea Pavan? For me, it's uh, improving, I mean, improving my tee shots. Having, I mean, like this, it's, it doesn't, may, may not sound too good, but having a weakness that doesn't kill you around, it's okay. But some, like, um, instead of having, for example, like, I know that I perform well, have good tournaments when my tee shots, uh, stroke gained are around zero. It's, I, I don't aim to gain to the field, but I don't gain, aim to get, lose too much because I know I can gain a lot on my approaches and the rest of my game. But if my tee shots are not, they're a little too poor, then it kind of takes, it takes me back to just being too average. And so for me, a little bit, and in order to improve that, there is the combination of uh, improving my form, but also bringing that form into the tournament and confidence in it. And going back to what one, the top 1% have it, I think they're self-driven. They can adapt very quickly to situations. I think being quick in adaptation is very important in, in golf and uh, which comes so it helps on both the score strategy just everything and then they just have a, a really one or two part of the game that are really strong for them and if they have a weakness it's kind of a average or very close to below average but not not something that can kill their round essentially yeah exactly you know, not debilitating and, and but they do have a they do have something that is really good and sets them apart as far as uh, skills. Yeah, fantastic. So I think that's certainly where we see you and your future. And I think you've uh, earned some more fans here with the conversation today, some more people that will be cheering from you in across Twitter, across Instagram, and even w- w- outside the ropes, hopefully not inside the ropes, but hopefully they won't <laughs> be yelling out mashed potatoes or Baba Booey. Right, in, in your backswing and are you on on social media i am on social media i have an instagram account and twitter i'm not i'm not as active as uh my fellow tour <laughs> professional eddie peverell that you interviewed uh, that Corey interviewed a few months ago what's that handle so they can give you a follow what's your instagram or twitter f- uh, handle twitter is andrea pavan 89 and instagram it's uh nello golf There you go. Thank you very much for your time today. Beyond beneficial, beyond valuable, and we appreciate it. And like I said, we'll be cheering cheering at you wherever you're playing in the world and hoping for um, plenty of birdies. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Kim. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.